Well, good morning again. We're starting a new series this morning. We're going to spend the next couple of months in, in the book of uh, 1 Timothy. And as we open up 1 Timothy and begin to study that this morning, I want to give you a little bit of background information. Uh, 1 Timothy's, uh, uh, they're all important books. 1 Timothy's uh, really important for a couple of reasons. Uh, 1 Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul, and it's one of the few books in the New Testament that was written to a specific person. Uh, most of the time, when you read one of Paul's epistles, it's a letter that's written to a particular um, city, uh, a large group. For example, Paul will write to the Christians in Rome, and we get the book of Romans. Uh, he'll write, he actually wrote a book to the church in Ephesus. Uh, but in this particular case, he writes a book, uh, a letter to his protege, um, uh, someone that he considered like his own son, uh, Timothy, to instruct him and to help him and to encourage him on a crucial mission that Timothy had. So he writes this book to Timothy. It's called one of the pastoral epistles, which is a good Bible word, epistles for letters. So it's one of the pastoral letters that Paul writes to a specific person. Uh, Titus is another example of a book in the pastoral letters or pastoral epistles. So that's, uh, that's who Paul's writing to. Uh, it's Paul, uh, the apostle, his letter to his protege, Timothy. And Timothy is in Ephesus. And what we find out, we have a map that will help us a little bit, I think. <coughs> Here is uh, um, Ephesus down in the corner. Uh, we have Philippi, Thessal Thessalonica, Achaia. And then up above is Macedonia. Macedonia. Paul tells us in the very beginning that when he was heading to Macedonia, he left Timothy uh, in Ephesus to continue on the work there for a very specific uh, purpose. But Ephesus is a very important city. Uh, at the time of the first century, there were about 50,000 people living in Ephesus. It's a commercial and cultural hub in that uh, period of history. And one of the main reasons is because it's on the coast and it's a very important uh, seaport city. So the world kind of arrived with their goods and services in, in Ephesus and then fanned out uh, through three major roads to the rest of the world. So Ephesus is a very important place. One of the things that marked Ephesus as significant, I have another picture, and it's the Temple of Artemis. Now, this is all we have left today, but in the first century, the Temple of Artemis um, uh, the Temple of Artemis was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 420 feet long, it was 260 feet wide, and it rose 60 feet up in the air. It was quite a spectacular piece, uh, a spectacular temple, and it was a, a big part of their commerce and people coming in. In fact, Acts 19 uh, tells the story of Paul arriving in Ephesus for the first time. And one of the great stories there is that so many people became followers of Jesus that it was killing the goldsmiths and the silversmiths who made statues of Artemis. And their business got so bad that they rioted and tried to get Paul and, and all of those new believers kicked out of Ephesus because it was, 
it was destroying their business. So uh, that's the temple, uh, the remnants of the temple of Artemis. There's another slide that will show us. This is a house. There was a lot of wealth in Ephesus. And this is actually inside the living room uh, of a wealthy person's home. And they were famous for their mosaics and their frescoes that would be painted on the walls. The architecture for the wealthy was interesting. They built their homes against a mountainside. And the roof, uh, the flat roof of the house on the bottom level would, was the terrace for the next house above it and so on as, the, as you went up the mountain. So that was a little bit of their architecture. That gives you a little bit of the art that adorned their homes. Their homes were famous for their luxurious bedrooms, their luxurious bathrooms, uh, their kitchens. They had w w what they called a triclinium which is a Latin word, tri meaning three and clinium meaning couch. And so they had these formal dining rooms that were made up of three couches, sort of in a U shape. And you would recline at these couches to have your dinner. And so they were ornate, uh, uh, very formal, very ritzy kinds of dining rooms that they had, these triclinium. So they were famous, the homes are famous for all of those things. And, and then there's one more picture uh, that helps us get a perspective on Ephesus. This is a, this is a theater, and it, originally it was built for theatrical presentations. It was built for theater, for plays, uh, things like that. And, and later on, under the Romans, it was expanded to seat 25,000, and it was used for gladiatorial contests. So the gladiators would fight in Ephesus. This was a famous, uh, famous arena, famous theater where gladiators would fight. It was such a big deal that, that there was actually a large gladiator cemetery in Ephesus. So we get this picture of Ephesus, this prominent seaport city, 50,000 people, all of this commerce, all of this culture, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to the goddess Artemis, who is the goddess of the hunt, by the way. And so we have this temple to Artemis, we have these extravagant homes, and now we have this theater that was, was at one point was used for plays, etc. and then now it's used for gladiators. Paul goes into Ephesus and, and lightning strikes. Everything begins to change. He finds a couple of people, a few people who had been followers of John the Baptist. He tells them about Christ. They commit their lives to follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, the church just explodes in Ephesus. And all over this great city of Ephesus, there are people meeting in their homes to talk about Jesus, to worship Christ, to pray together. And the church is going. They don't have a central meeting place, so they meet in homes. And so now you picture this in this multicultural community in this really uh, opulent, wealthy, commercial city, uh, seaport city, the church is expanding rapidly. Now, there, become, there comes some problems that Paul needs to address, and that's why he leaves Timothy, and that's what we're going to begin with this morning. But I wanted you to get a little bit of background in the city of Ephesus because it gives you a perspective on how complicated it was for Timothy. Now, imagine this. You've got this great city of Ephesus, this famous place, important place. You've seen the church just explode. Uh, Paul is going to Macedonia. He leaves Timothy there. He says, I want you to, there's, I, I'm giving you a charge. There's some men that are speaking falsely. They're, they're uh, you know, denigrating the gospel of Jesus. They're teaching things that aren't true. And, and I, want you to, I want you to go challenge these guys. Here's the problem. Timothy's about 30 years old. And Timothy's known to be sort of a timid, quiet guy. And so now Paul is writing him to instruct him, but also to, to, 
to power him up, to tell him where strength comes from, where his power comes from, why he's leaving him there, why it's so important. And, and so we get that out of this letter to Timothy as well. So here's how Paul begins. In uh, 1 Timothy 1, 2, oh wait, I have one more slide before we go do that. This will help you too, there's a timeline. So let's just look real quickly, sorry. Paul goes on his first missionary journey around AD 46 to 47. Paul visits Ephesus on his second missionary journey around A.D. 50. Paul ministers in Ephesus on his third missionary journey around A.D. 53 to 56. Paul spent two or three years in Ephesus, really establishing the church there. Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, A.D. 57. He travels to Rome in A.D. 60. He writes 1st and 2nd Timothy, probably around A.D. 65, but we'll list it from 62, anywhere from 62 to 65. And then somewhere around 64 to 67, Peter and Paul are martyred in Rome. So it gives you a picture. Paul had three missionary journeys that are talked about in the New Testament. And uh, on the second one is when he spent a good deal of time. He visited Ephesus the first time uh, on his second journey. On his third journey, he stays for a couple of years, and the church is established there. So now let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, uh, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul wastes no time. He wants, the, he wants anybody that's ever going to look at this letter, he wants to remind Timothy this is who he is. He's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This word apostle means to be sent. So Paul is saying that here's where my authority comes from. Here's where my street cred comes. Th this is... Uh, who I am, I'm an apostle, I'm one that's been sent by Christ. I've been sent by Christ on a mission. It's gonna be really important as we move through the book of 1 Timothy to understand that's who Paul identifies himself as, that he's one sent by Christ. And then he looks at, he refers to Timothy and he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy, you're like a son to me. You're like one of my own kids. That's how much I love you. That's what I think of you. And so here is Paul, the great apostle, writing to Timothy, this young man that he loves so much like his own son. And so this is, a, this is gonna be an instructive letter, but it's also gonna be a tender letter as Paul writes uh, to Timothy. And then he uses sort of a standard salutation, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He continues on in verse three, he says this, as I urged you when you were going, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he says, I'm sending you to, cha to charge some men who are beginning to take the gospel and they're adding to it and they're sort of writing their own version of it and they're putting in things and they're, 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 they're pretending that they're the smartest kid in the class and they're saying, you know, if you really want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, if you really want to know, there's, it's not just the gospel, but, but you got to look at genealogies, you got to look at other mythologies, you got to look at, they're adding all of these other things to the gospel and Paul's saying, I want you to go after those guys. I want you to charge those guys. And he said, he, he says here that in, ver, in verse five, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
So let's look at these two things in tension. On one hand, uh, we have these guys that are teaching. They're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies, and they're promoting speculations rather than the stewardship, the truth that comes from the Lord. He says, what we offer, the charge that we bring is love. It begins with the love of Christ, and then it's how we love each other. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart an unmixed heart, a heart that's focused on Christ and who Christ is. It's from a good conscience that we are staying faithful and true to who the Lord is and what he's called us to. And finally, a sincere faith. I love the word sincere in the New Testament because it's a, it's a picture. And, and the picture is of a vessel, of a, of a clay pot or something. And, and if, you were on, if you were in the marketplace and you were buying a clay pot, one of the things that you would do is you would pick up that pot and you would hold it up to the sun. And if there were any leaks in that pot, they would shine through, uh, the, the leaks would shine through when you held it up to the sun. And so sincerity was a picture of a pot held up to the sun and nothing shining through. There are no leaks in it. And he's saying that these guys are presenting a story. These guys are telling, are teaching uh, a gospel. They're teaching uh, a message that has a lot of leaks in it. It's not sincere. It's not really true. It kind of looks true, but when you really look at it in light, in the light of who Christ is, in light of, of the truth, you see all of the leaks in it. And so he talks about the love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says in verse six, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They're just talking about stuff they don't get. They're talking about things that they don't understand. Uh, they're, they're trying to add to the gospel. They're trying to, to show how wise they are, but in doing that, they're just showing how little they understand what it really means to be a follower of Christ, what, it really, what the gospel really means. False, we're not completely clear what these false teachers were talking about all the time, but one thing we know for certain is that um, Paul refers to them as adding things to the gospel adding things to the story of Jesus, adding things to what it means to be a follower of Christ. So Paul continues in verse 12 with this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. So I want to stop here just for a second because Paul's saying, I thank the Lord that he's given me a mission. I thank the Lord that he's given me a charge because uh, I don't deserve it because here's what I used to be like. Here's what my former life was. I, I was a blasphemer. Uh, I, I, was, um, I was a persecutor of the church. I was an insolent opponent. Think about that. He spoke against Jesus. He tried to convince people not to follow Christ. He became a persecutor. Uh, he, became, he, he went to the rulers of the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish rulers and to the Roman rulers uh, to get a, a paper that gave him the right to persecute Christians, that they would go to people's homes who were followers of Jesus. They would drag them out of their homes. Paul held the cloaks of the men who stoned Stephen, the first martyr in the New Testament, to death. He was an accomplice in all of that. In fact, he was the instigator of that. Paul says, look at my life. I spoke against Jesus. I participated in the persecution of innocent people, and I was uh, arrogant. I was insolent. I was an uh, insolent opponent of Christ. He said, I was arrogant. I thought I knew everything. I always thought I was right. 
I always thought I had the right answer. I thought I knew better than anybody else, but I really didn't. And that's who I was. And I thank God that he did not give up on me. I thank God that he didn't leave me out. In fact, here's what he says, uh, continuing on verse 13, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, Paul, as Paul says this, it echoes some remarkable words that we remember from the Gospels. When Jesus was on the cross and he, and he looked down and he saw the Romans who had nailed him to the cross, do you remember what he said? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And here's what Paul said. He said, I'm like those Romans who crucified Jesus. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an opponent. I was an arrogant opponent of the gospel, but I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing in Christ and his incredible love and his patience. He forgave me. Paul says this, that the grace, and verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that there was a moment in my life, and it's recorded in Acts 9, where I encountered the risen Christ, and his love and his grace just covered me. It overflowed me. I was helpless against it. I, when I realized how much God loved me, when I realized who Jesus was and what he had done, it was overwhelming. And I was changed forever. And then he finishes, he, or he continues with this, that saying is trustworthy, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul's saying this, that why did Christ come? The purpose, the reason he came, he, Paul says, was for guys like me, for sinners, for the blasphemer, the persecutor, the arrogant. He came for me. He came for reach people like me. And Paul says, in fact, he came to save sinners and I was the worst one. I was the foremost. Now, if you've read it in another translation, it might, you might have read it where Paul says, I am the chief of all sinners. When Paul thought about his life, he couldn't imagine anybody that had done worse things than him. He couldn't imagine anybody that was so far, that was farther away from God than he was. He couldn't imagine anyone that would have had a conscience as guilty as his. And yet he says that the love of Christ overflowed. The love of Christ overwhelmed me. And my whole life has changed. Everything about me has changed. He said, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, as the chiefest of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then Paul breaks out into worship. He can't help himself. The very next thing he says is to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. He punctuates what he says with a praise to the Lord, recognition of who Christ is, recognition of who God is. So verse 13 teaches us that God's grace is unconditional. Paul is saying, if I received grace, there is nobody beyond God's grace. There is nobody so far out that God's grace can't reach them. 
if God could even reach me in his infinite patience. You know how often we get impatient with the Lord? You know how often we get impatient with, you know, okay, Lord, you, what, what are you doing in this world? It's time. Fix this place. Do something or just come back and get us all. But we're done with this. This is a mess. And yet what Paul is saying is that Christ is so patient that he's waiting for that next person to say, I'm going to follow you. He's waiting for that next person to ask for forgiveness. He's waiting for that next person to see that he's the Christ, that he's the one. And here's what we should all do. We should all bow and say, Lord, thank you that you didn't lose patience before it was my turn, before I saw you, before I recognized you, before I was given new life. Thank you, Jesus, for your patience. Thank you. We used to, I used to joke with my sons as we, we'd talk about their buddies at school and we'd have a list of guys that we would pray for and, and uh, we'd go after, you know, recruit to come to something with us, you know, and, and so we, I would ask him periodically about one of their buddies and, and one of my sons would say, Dad, not him, man. He'll never come to anything. Don't even bother. It's like, don't even pray for that guy. He is such a loser. He is so far away. He is so disinterested, you know, all of, and, and, and I would stop and I'd say, wait, who made you the pre-qualifier, you know, for who gets in and who doesn't? I think that's the Lord's job. So let's, let's think about the farthest out kid. Let's think about the kid that you think has no chance. Let's start praying for him. Let's start talking to him and see what the Lord can do. But we have a tendency to pre-qualify. And Paul says God's patience, his love, goes beyond anything we can imagine. There's nobody outside of his range. There's no one that's outside of his love. So, so here's the first big lesson that Paul became an apostle when he realized that he had been accepted by Jesus. That beyond anything else that he had ever done, beyond anything that he would ever do, he had been completely and unconditionally accepted by Christ. The first step in becoming a follower of Jesus, it isn't saying a prayer. It's not trying to act better. It's not trying to do anything, but it's a, the recognition that we have been accepted by Christ, that he's been so patient that his love overflows for us, that he came to give his life on a cross for us, that he accepts us, not because we're so good, not because we've accomplished anything, but because he is Christ, the Christ. He's God because of his love, because of his patience, because of who he is, that we have been accepted by Christ. And here's the second thing that Paul wants us to know, the second thing that he's writing to Timothy, that not only, not only is the first step to recognize that we've been accepted by Christ, but the second part of that is that he gives us a new identity. Paul says, man, I'm a different person. I'm completely different. In fact, in, 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 if you read the book of Acts, you see that early in Paul's life, he was Saul. That was his Hebrew name. His later life, he was Paul, his Greek name. That, that, that we even have a picture of Paul that's so astounding. He even changes his name, the change in his life, that he has a new identity. Here's what Jesus teaches us in John 1:12. He says that any, to anyone who calls upon his name, to anyone who believes in him, he gives the right to be called a child of God. It gives us a right to be called children of God. We're no longer outside of the family, but we are, we are part of God's family, that we're his children, that we belong to him. 
that everything that goes with being a child of God, every part of the inheritance, every gift, every bit of love is ours because we're his children. And, and if you've been here very many times, you know that we also always talk about 2 Corinthians 5, 17 that says that there is anyone in Christ, they are a new creation, that we have a new identity, the old has gone away, behold, the new has come, that we're not the old person anymore, we're not, we're not stuck, uh, we're not mired, we're not buried in our own sin and all the things that we've done in the past and, and our worries about all the things that we're going to be in the future or do in the future. But, but here's what he says, that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Not only have you been accepted by Christ, but now you have an identity. You are a child of God. That's who you are. And I don't care what anybody else tells you today. And I don't care the, of any other message that our culture or our world would try to convince you of, that if you are in Christ, you are his child and nobody, nobody can take that away from you. And there is a joy that comes from that acceptance that no one can take away from you, that you know who you are this morning. You don't have anything to prove. You don't have anything to make up. You just respond because of who you are in Christ because he's accepted you. And you see, the, the, the guys that, were, that, that Timothy is supposed to talk to, the guys that were adding things to the gospel, they were trying to convince people that you need to do all of these extra things. You need to obey all of these extra things. And, and here's what Paul is saying, that when we've been accepted by Christ and when my identity is in him, I don't have to do anything. I want to serve him. I want to live my life to honor him. I want to do those things that, that, would, give, that would show my love for Christ and, and a recognition of who he is in my life and what he's done. It's not because I have to. It's not because I have to obey all of these rules. It's because in my heart, I am so grateful for what Jesus has done. I'm so grateful for how he's changed me. I'm so grateful for everything in my life that I want to please him. I want to serve him. I want to live my life for him. That's what Paul wants us to understand. John Ortberg says this in his great book, Soul Keeping. For Jesus, identity and acceptance come before achievement and ministry. Identity and acceptance come before achievement and ministry. So before you run out today and say, boy, I'm going to do all these things for the Lord, just re remind yourself, here's where it starts recognizing I've been accepted by the Lord and that my identity is as a child of God. It's because of him, nothing I do. And I have a mission and I have a purpose because of who Jesus is. That's grace. That's the gospel. Here's an interesting fact. Uh, the, the day on which your sheer existence uh, is celebrated is your birthday. But you get no credit for your role in that event at all. You were never less competent on any day of your life than the day you were born. You were weaker, slower, dumber, slimier, least coordinated, least developed in IQ, and had a higher nuisance factor that day than any other day of your existence. I get an amen? A birth is grace. And if you live to be 100, you'll get a letter from the President of the United States just because you didn't die, right? Because you're still alive. A birth is grace. We don't do anything for it. We don't do anything to achieve it. We have the privilege. We're given that gift of life. That's what Paul is talking about, that that's what grace looks like. Not something we earn, but something that we're given. 
there's another uh, great picture uh, of all of this. And I don't know how many of you remember the old um, series, the, the Lone Ranger, but uh, it's a great one, you know, the Lone Ranger and Tonto. I'm not talking about Army Hammer and Johnny Depp. I'm talking about the old guys, you know, uh, the classics. But, and you know it's an old series if I watched the reruns growing up and wasn't even old enough to see it the first round. But uh, you doubting me? No, no, kidding. Um, but uh, but the, the Lone Ranger is this great story, uh, and, and one of the central characters of the Lone Ranger is his horse. Who knows what his horse's name was? Silver, yeah, come on, you don't, you're not dating yourself. There was, a, there was a recent version of it. But anyway, his horse was Silver. And Silver is really famous in the story because Silver was this horse that couldn't be broken. You, do you remember? Silver was this horse, and you'd see him up on the cliff, and he'd rear up, you know, and he was leading the wild stallions, and he was considered the horse, an untamable horse, but something happens, because even Tano told the Lone Ranger, don't try to get that horse, you'll never, he's untamable, he's unrideable, but something mystical happens in the course of the Lone Ranger, and he and Silver make a connection, and he tames Silver, and he rides him on all of his adventures, and it's the Lone Ranger and Silver, the untamable horse. And, you know, it becomes part of the Western ethos in our culture in those years and that generation because the idea was that if, if the Lone Ranger could tame silver, then there is no, there's no bad guy in the world that he can't take. There's no problem that he's going to come into that he can't solve. If he can tame silver, he can do anything. He's a legit hero. That's who the Lone Ranger is. And, and you see, that's exactly what Paul is saying, that if you really want to look at the true hero, if you want to look at the true Savior, he says, I was the untamable. I was the one that was so far out. I was the one that was saying, don't even think about that guy. Don't invite him to anything. He's, he is, he's a persecutor. He's a murderer. He's a slander. He's a blasphemer. He's way too far out. And yet God's grace saved me. And if Jesus could save Paul, that's what he's saying. If Jesus could get to Paul, he can get to anybody. Nobody is outside of his grasp. Nobody's outside of his love. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. And Paul is saying that good intentions aren't enough, but it takes a relationship with Christ. And he says, I'm an example of what it means to follow Christ. He was the worst of the worst. So here's, a <coughs> here's where we're going. There's two things that we learn from Paul's story. The first is that, there, that the first lesson that we learn is that there is nobody who's beyond God's grace. There's nobody who's so bad, who's so far out that they're beyond God's grace. No one. He proved that. He showed us that. Here's the second thing. The second lesson is that the path to spiritual maturity is not becoming more independent it's not thinking that we're a more powerful Christian. But the path to spiritual maturity is just the opposite. You see, here's what we do. We, we've been a believer for a long time, and we think that being a mature Christian means that there's stuff comes up in our lives, and we say, okay, God, no problem. I got that one. I got this one. I've been around a long time. I know a lot of Bible verses. I know a lot about you. I got this one. I'll take care of this one for you. That's not spir spiritual maturity. That's a lack of wisdom. But real spiritual maturity is this, that the longer we know Christ, the longer we've been a follower of Jesus, the more deeply we're convinced of our need for him. The more deeply we understand that without him, we're completely lost. 
the more deeply we depend on his strength and his wisdom in our lives. The longer we know Jesus, the more we understand how much we need him. Not that we can do without him. Not that we have enough wisdom on our own. Not that we can take care of things on our own, but we recognize how deeply, completely, we need him. If you want to know what it means to be a spiritual, have it be a spiritually mature person, it's a person who understands how deeply they need Jesus, how much their heart and their life depends on him. And here's the other thing, is that this is God's story. It's a story of his love. My story and your story, we fit into his story, but it's really about God's love. It's really about who he is. It's really about his patience, his power, his strength, his love for us, his provision for us. And then my story is simply I recognize that I've been accepted by him and that my identity comes from knowing Jesus. And I fit in to his story in the world. It's just too easy for me to begin to feel like it's all about me. But it isn't. It's all about him. We need to always keep that in mind. So Paul, not only was he accepted and not only did he get a new identity, but he got a new mission. Paul was given the mission to the Gentiles. He was called an apostle, sent out to take the gospel all over the world to every kind of person, no matter their background, uh, no matter what they have done, no matter how far away they were. No one was outside of the love of Christ. And Paul took that message. That was his mission. And it was overwhelming to him because he said, look at my life. Look at what I've done. And now not only am I accepted, not only do I have a new identity, but I have a mission that he's given me something to do for him. And when we talk about that mission here at North, here's what we talk about. We talk about to love God, to love one another, and love the world. Do you want to know what your mission is? Your mission is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love one another as Christ has loved you, and to love the world as Christ loved the world. That's our mission. That's what we're called to do. You have been accepted by Christ. You have a new identity in Christ. You're his child, and you have been given a mission to love God, to love one another, and to love the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful. So grateful for your love for us. Lord, thank you. Thank you that none of us were beyond your reach, and Lord, you were, have been so patient um, that we didn't miss the cutoff, that we didn't miss the time. Lord, thank you for your love that overwhelms us, that overflows us. Lord, I pray this morning that you would encourage us, convict us, whatever is necessary, that, that our life in you begins when you accepted us and our, we discovered a new identity in you. And Lord, then we live our lives out of that truth and out of that reality. And Lord, that you have given us a mission. And so Lord, we receive that this morning and we ask that you would give us the strength and the courage to fulfill the mission that you've called us to. Lord, we'll give you all the honor and the glory and the praise because it's for your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.